Romans 8. We've made our way so far to verse 26. I'm going to take a little running start back at that. So, because 26 is going to say likewise, which ties into what the chapter has been saying. So let's start from 12 and just read down. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, we also who had the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if with hope, but if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Now, likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercessions for the saints according to the will of God. Paul has been working through this whole chapter showing this new life in the Spirit. It doesn't only relate to tongues or spiritual gifts. It is a totally new life. It is a new law now in us that we live by. It is what has brought us to a new place of freedom from our flesh, that we could put to death the deeds of the flesh, the Holy Spirit, has shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. It has built faith, hope, and love in us. The Holy Spirit works in us in his power to reveal to us, witness to us personally that we are the children of God. It causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit in his work in our lives has taken the glory that God has promised to us and made those things real to us, so much so that it is greater than the sufferings we face here. The Holy Spirit, as the first fruits, has put in us this hope for eternal things, a redemption, a revealing of the children of God. So he's been working through all this new life that we did not have outside of Christ, that we now have in Christ through his Holy Spirit. And he throws in there now, Likewise, this is also part of our freedom in the Spirit and part of this life in the Spirit that we now have. The Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, and particularly a place of weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, 
but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered, particularly weakness in prayer. The Holy Spirit helps us. That word in the Greek help had the idea of somebody getting a partner to help them carry something that would be too heavy for one person. He comes alongside and helps us carry a burden, something we couldn't do on our own, that we didn't have the strength for. And it's particularly cooperation in prayer. Because Paul tells us something wonderful, at least I find it wonderful, that he says, and I think this is amazing, the Apostle Paul, we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Paul, the apostle, including himself, is saying, we don't always know what we should pray. And I just love that this apostle is admitting, not that there, certainly we know there are certain things we should pray for. We should pray for the salvation of people. We should pray for loved ones. The Bible tells us, Paul will say directly to people, we should pray for those in authority over us. He tells us some things that we should pray for. But what he's saying here is we all, he's acknowledging, we all come to things in life, places in life, where we don't know how to pray in that moment. What, for what, how, uh, we might not have the words for it. We'll talk about what that looks like. But everyone in their Christian life is going to come to a place where they're not sure what they're supposed to pray in the moment. And, you know, I think of, even in the scriptures, the demoniac, this man that Jesus casts literally who knows how many demons out of. And that guy comes and asks Jesus if he can stay with him. And Jesus says, no. You'd think that would be a prayer that would be answered. Jesus says, no, I want you to stay here and tell people about me, your friends and your family, wherever they were at that point. Pretty unique, right? You wouldn't think that would be a prayer he would say no to. I think of the disciples telling Jesus to send people away or call down fire from heaven. Jesus says, no, <laughs> you don't know how to pray as you all hear. There was zeal there for him in, in ways that was good, but he, that prayer had to be kind of redirected there. I think of Paul, certainly we know himself. The Bible tells us three times he prayed for that thorn that he had, asked the Lord, God had to speak to him that his grace was sufficient for him. Paul would admit when he writes to the Philippians under house arrest, I don't know what God wants from me, whether he wants me to stay here or to go to heaven, which is far better. I think he wants me to stay here. But he didn't, he admits, I don't, I don't know. He didn't have a direct prayer for that moment. And I, we can, we could continue kind of pulling out illustrations and examples through the scripture, really godly individuals, those who loved the Lord, came to scenarios where they didn't really know how to pray what they should pray. They weren't 100% sure what their prayer should look like. And one of the things Paul says is, Here, here's another great thing the Holy Spirit does for us. We don't know how to pray. We have weaknesses. We have weaknesses in our knowledge we have weaknesses in our maturity. We have weaknesses literally just physically. 
We have weaknesses because we find ourselves in positions where we don't even have the words. The Bible says, with groanings which cannot be uttered. The Greek could also mean size. The idea there is we can't even put into words at this point where we're at, what our prayer would be. And it's a, it's a wonderful reality that you don't need to prescribe to God all the time what your prayer should be. I, I can come to him as the great physician in my life and just submit myself to him or even just my problem. A, a lot of times we want to we pray and we want to also prescribe. Okay, Lord, you know, uh, I've been praying for this person to be saved and I'm going to bring them to this event and this has got to be it. And then we're praying about it. And, and if they don't get saved at that event, then we can get depressed or like, oh, I thought this would be it or... God knows I can, I can just bring the person to him and say, Lord, I, I know it's not your will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I'm going to bring this person to you, and I'm going to leave them with you. I'm, I'm going to put them into your hands. And I'm going to trust that you know what's best for them. I don't always know how to pray as I ought. But... Your spirit knows what's in my heart. And, and you know what's best for this individual. And Paul is recognizing that we all come to times where our understanding fails, our words fail. You know, he says again, with groanings, which cannot be uttered, those places in life where you know, we, we might not know how to pray. Maybe when you're doing really well, uh, it's easier for you to pray. Um, but, you know, you end up in a surgery. You have a major surgery. You're laying in a hospital bed. It's pretty hard to pray after that. Uh, I remember after one major surgery I had where I knew I was going to be laid up for a little while, I got a whole stack of books. I was like, I'm gonna, if I'm going to be laid up, I'll use my time well. I'll read I didn't read any of those books. I just laid around and, like, suffered and didn't want to think about anything. You know, I wasn't, I was not able to focus uh, as I thought I was going to be able to. God knows, you know, you, you end up in a position where there's a tragedy in your life, or you're, you're trapped in this moment, you're, you're in a hospital bed, in a sick bed, or on a deathbed, and what, what words do you pray at that point? Do what? What do you? You come to positions in life, and we all do here and there, where we don't know how to pray as we ought. And what Paul is saying is, don't get discouraged. There, your life is a prayer at that point. God knows it. He knows your heart, the spirit that He gave you, the witnesses that you're His son and you're His daughter. He knows those things. I don't have to pray with all eloquence, all my words, or be able to perfectly put into words what, whatever God's will is in the scenario that I might, might not even know. It could be beyond me. I just need to pray with all my heart, not all my words. And as long as that's in it, the Holy Spirit gets it. He understands, and he intercedes for us. He helps us where... We fail in these things through weakness, not through sin, 
Well, he helps there, but he helps by reproving us and correcting us. It's not just you praying so that you can sin, right? You have not, because you ask amiss. James says that. This is, this is the believer who wants to honor the Lord, but be, just because of their weakness, weakness in flesh, still, still this is a part of, I believe, the context where we have this weakness in our flesh to want to do what is right and serve him. But now the Holy Spirit comes in and helps us. We do that outwardly in obedience and submitting our lives to him, our members as things that honor him, tools for his use. And then the same thing happens in our heart, in our prayer, in our desires towards him, toward other people. The Holy Spirit steps in and he works on our behalf. And I love that in this, this section here that there's such a, uh, an emphasis and a beautiful trust on the Lord. Notice it says that he helps us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercessions for the saints according to, your Bible says, the will of God. Notice the will of there is in italics. The, the idea is basically according to God. Now that includes his will, but it's according to God's nature, according to who he is, according to God's heart. And yes, his will too, and that's all a part of it. But I'm, I'm praying with my heart, and that's what the Holy Spirit's searching anyway. He's, he's not looking at my prayer as like a, a, a text where he's pointing out typos. This word's wrong here. You missed something here. He's not like that. That's what we're like. He, he sees the heart. Hell and destruction are before the eyes of the Lord. How much more the hearts of the children of men. He already knows what we're trying to say before we say it. Any real prayer is true in the heart before it comes out in the lips anyway. So he's aware of all those things. And when we're, we're short, our weakness for some reason puts us in a position where all we have is groanings or sighs, what's in our heart, and that's all we can put before him, or our words are weak. He gets it. And I don't have to be discouraged in prayer because of that. I just need to be dependent. That's what Paul's saying. You know, when you find yourself in that place, it's not that you're now doing a bad job. Because before, you know, there's, there's times where you're really feeling it in prayer. You're really focused. God gives you the words. And then there's other times where you don't have any of that. And what he's saying is, now the Holy Spirit... He helps us there, too. And Paul, in such a remarkable way, can just say, that's, that's where we all find ourselves. We, he includes himself. The Apostle Paul, who prayed some of the most remarkable prayers that are inspired in Scripture, admits, I, I don't always know what to pray. I, I love that. And I think it's also instructive instructive for us the humility that Paul shows here, the emphasis of putting, putting the power of prayer back on the Lord and the work of the Spirit in our lives and his intercession for us, because in the world we live in, it's very obvious. If you read these verses and you, you feel what Paul is saying there, there's a confessed need for God, a confessed need for his Spirit, a confessed dependence that's shared by the apostles and you can feel that spirit, then in contrast to that, you look around in the world today 
where there's all where in worlds of prayer there's all these methods and there's these formulas and there's these this declarative knowledge that people have that you find in so many religious circles that's the exact opposite of what Paul is saying here the bible has so many exhortations to prayer but actually so little in regard to formula or methodology in terms of like they didn't do a lot of things it just tells us to pray to do it to come to the lord it's almost intuitive like you you know how to do this you should come to him. But in the opposite of the world we live in, there's all these tricks that if you have this particular formula, then you're going to get everything that you want. Right? And the, a few years ago, there was these books, The Secret or The Prayer of Jabez, or these circle things and mountain things that people have. You have meditative practices. Literally, I saw the other day this person charging thousands of dollars for these prayer, power prayer classes that you can take walking in circles, symbols. I mean, we could go through a list of all these things that people have, like Paul didn't know who Jabez was or something like that. The, the reality is there's, there's so many of these things out there that actually just end up discouraging people. And they, Satan's smart. He's not going to tell you don't pray. Then you know it's Satan. He's going to say pray in the wrong way, which will discourage you and actually get you out of the will of God. Where Paul can just say, when you don't know what you're doing, trust the Holy Spirit. You need to be dependent on him. It's not the method that is the thing that wins it for people. His we here is a dagger to all those types of unbiblical methods and all the weird mechanics. And it brings us back to personal reliance on a present and personal God. When I pray, I'm more caught up with him than what I'm coming for. And I recognize that he's greater. And then I'm not there trying to manipulate him with some secret type of Bible thing to get what I want every time. No, I, I come like a, like a human being in need. And where I'm weak, I don't need a secret method. I need to just trust in him because he's already made the method through his Holy Spirit. He's provided me what I need in coming to him. So I don't have to get discouraged when I feel like I don't have the words or I'm not sure what I need to pray in a scenario or I don't know what God's will exactly is. I need to just become dependent. I need to read these verses and say, Lord, you've given me your spirit as a son and daughter of God. And you know what my heart is. And I have this issue or this thing or this person. And I can just bring it to you and I can put it into your hands and I can be dependent that you know what's best. You know what my prayer is. It would, it would have been better if if James and John came to Jesus instead of saying, call down fire from heaven and burn them up, like, we're really upset, Lord, but you know what our heart is, right? Because <laughs> he, he could filter out all the junk and say, yeah, the zeal part here is good, right? I'm not going to quench a smoking flax. There's a lot of smoke here that's a problem, but there's a little bit of fire in there that's good. He knows how to work through all that in our lives. 
And he's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can be dependent on him. We're all going to find weakness there. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are. Paul found it. Those apostles found it. If you would allow me to bring another uh, person to bear, I, I think of this quote often. John Bunyan, who's a pretty incredible person, uh, who I feel like has taught me quite a bit in prayer, said this of himself, Verily may I speak my own experience, and from that tell you the difficulty of prayer to God as I ought. It's enough to make poor, blind, carnal men entertain strange thoughts of me. For as for my heart, when I go to pray, I find it so, he says, loath, Old English, reluctant, to go to God, and when it is with him, so loath to stay with him, that many times I am forced in my prayers first to beg of God that he would take my heart and set it on himself in Christ. And when it is there, that he would keep it there. Nay, many times I know not what to pray for. I am so blind, nor how to pray. I am so ignorant. Only blessed be grace. The Spirit helps in our infirmities. That's a really godly guy. And and his hope was not that he could find some secret method that somebody hadn't found out or read a special book that will teach him the things that he needed. His hope was, Lord, I'm a wicked person. You know how distracted I am. You know my heart doesn't even want to be here with you. Change me. Thank you for your grace. Help me because I'm blind. Help me because I'm ignorant. See my weaknesses when I come to you. And what happens there is your focus is on Christ and not yourself. If your focus stays on yourself, you will be discouraged. You will give up on prayer. If your focus is just to get what you want or prescribe your own way to God, you will be discouraged. You will give up on prayer. But if your focus is, God, I trust you and I love you, and I know you're here to help me even when I'm weak, you will be dependent and you will find God. He'll help you. It's, it's so much easier to fall into religious forms than it is to try to stay in the reality of something, to keep the heart in it. It's hard for Moses to hold up his arms. It was hard for those guys to help him for that long when he was interceding for the people physically. It's harder to keep our heart there our mind, our sincerity, where the Lord has it. But he will help us. It's not impossible now because of the new life that we have in the Spirit, because of his intercession on our behalf. And we do this by faith. Lord, it's your word. And so I'm going to trust that you're playing your part because you said it. Sometimes we just talk about faith as like the thing that gets us into spiritual life. We live by faith. It's the door and the path. And, and faith isn't just trusting God to give me food and money and my job. If I don't have faith, I won't know how to pray correctly. Because when I come to my own weaknesses, I'll begin to trust in myself instead of in God. I have faith in the Lord. So that likewise, the Spirit will also help me in my weaknesses. And we're ignorant. We're blind. We don't know what we should pray. 
but he has made intercession for us, even for groanings, even though for the words that we don't know how to put before the Lord, he knows how to take them and put them before the Lord. He searches our hearts, and he knows what the mind of the Spirit is, and he makes intercessions for the saints according to God. Wonderful promise. And God allows us then to be a part of it so that you can be dependent and you can begin to pray. And he will lead you as you pray. The really cool thing that, that the Holy Spirit is over the whole earth and with everybody simultaneously. So, so that we can be here tonight and he can also be with somebody, you know, on the other side of the United States. And he can just put you on their heart and say, I want you praying this for this person. Because he's with both people right at the moment. And you can just put that person before the Lord. He does this. Put somebody on your mind. He'll have you on somebody else's mind. He'll text you thinking of you today, praying for you. There'll be a burden to pray for something. You see something, you hear something. And a lot of times those things just pass us by. And then other times something will stick with you. A believer in a scenario in another part of the world or a story or a situation. And God will just have that thing on your heart. That's... That's the Holy Spirit. Christ is in heaven. He's given us his spirit on earth. He's ever living to make intercession for the saints. The Holy Spirit is in us. He understands what's going on in our hearts. He makes intercession with those things. And he, he's looking for people to be a part of it. He'll invite you into the process. And allow you not only to receive of the blessing, but to be a part of the blessing. Just looking for people that are willing to be a part of the work. And he helps us in our weaknesses. Uh, I think just about everybody would admit we have weakness in prayer. But I don't have to have weakness there alone. And I'm not left to my own. It's a beautiful promise. Likewise, the Spirit will help us there. And he says in 28, We know that all things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And certainly in the context of prayer, everything we're praying for, he knows that. He's working all things to his expected end. When we pray for things and it might go an opposite way that we thought, he knows what he's doing. We got to trust him on how that's working. And I think this verse is also kind of a summary of 1 through 27. He's He's kind of building everything to a crescendo here. He's ending this, this very strictly kind of doctrinal section of the book, although there's exhortations in it. But he's going to move on to kind of a different flavor as he moves forward here. And he puts this verse in front of us to, I think, kind of collect things in a way. And it's one of those verses that we have all heard. Uh, it's one of those things that is very easy to share. Sometimes we probably don't want to hear this verse from other people. We need the Lord to speak this to us, particularly when we really need it. It is an incredible promise. Notice, again, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's not just for good in all scenarios for all men, because not all men love God, and not all men care very much for his purposes. Some are directly against his purposes. And even the good can turn for evil in that regard. 
Some men are being pressed toward hell with the weight of sermons on their back. And the truth that they've heard, they're going to be accountable for. It's part of the reason Jesus told parables. Because that weight of the truth that they were rejecting was actually not going to help them. It was going to be a witness against them. And everything does not work for good to those who do not love God and are not called according to his purpose. But for his children, who he's talking about here, for those who have his spirit, those who are his sons and daughters, this promise is for them. Everything didn't work for Judas's good. For Peter, for James, for John, it worked for their good. All the things they went through with Christ, all the difficulty they saw, all the hardship of their lives. And Paul's trying to tell this truth to sons and daughters of God to remind them, look, you're never going to come out the loser for loving him. You're never going to look back and say, he got that one wrong. You're not going to be the first person in the world that he's failed, that his purposes didn't come through for you personally. He wants us to be sure of this. Notice 28, and we know. He just admitted there are things that we don't know. I don't always know what to pray in every situation. But I know in the end, every situation, God's going to take care of it. Those who love God and are called according to his purposes. God's going to take care of those things. We know that all things are working for his good. This is, this is supposed to be one of our modest certainties in life. There are a lot of things you could be unsure of in life. Some of us are a little more cynical than others. But the reality is, this is one of the things that we're supposed to hold to. It's a blessed surety of Christian knowledge. There are some things the Bible talks about. Here's your extra homework for tonight is you could do your own little study on this phrase, we know, particularly in Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, 1 John. It's used a number of times in each of those books where Paul says, we know this. This is a, a sure Christian knowledge, something that we can hold on to. It's a good study to do on your own. It's not tonight's study. But this here is one of those things that we know. And we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. All things are working for his good, which tells us a couple things. First is, I cannot judge God's person or work based on a lonely incident or an isolated circumstance. Or even really a single life. All things. God is working everything in existence toward his final end. And we're too often tempted to see ourselves selfishly and outside of God's ultimate purpose. All, all we, Satan wants us to just focus on our lives, me and myself, irrespective of how my life connects to anybody else's life and God's kingdom particularly. Uh, it's, you know, part of the whole American message, right? Thirsty, why wait? Hungry, have a Snickers. You know, like every single marketing thing is you have a desire, just fulfill it. And all of those things just filter into our mind that my life is about me. And even as Christians, it's easy to, it's easy to allow that to sneak in where 
we're like, okay, I can't sin, but as long as I'm not doing really bad sins, my life is still about me. As long as I do it in a Christian way, it can still be about me. That's not how it works. No, I'm, I'm loving him and I'm called according to his purposes. I, I have to trust him with my whole life. And so I can't take these isolated incidences and say, somehow I'm not a part of your purposes or your kingdom anymore. That should be encouraging for us. It's often a challenge for us. But God has created everything to work together in creation. He made this on the first day it was good, this on the second day it was good, this on the third day it was good. And at the end, he looked at all things and said it was very good because each thing that he made worked particularly with everything else and the whole thing worked together. And what God is doing is organizing everything, not just your life. Your life is a part of everything. And he organizes that too. But, but the reality is I can't see myself isolated from the rest of that, from everybody else and everything else. As a Christian, I, I am nowhere encouraged to live my life irrespective of God's, pers- God's person and other people's persons. Those are the two biggest things, love him, love others. So I have to see myself in relation to all of that. All things are working, and I have to stay in that context. All things also includes all the things I'm not thinking about because I don't see them, but God still does, which would include living with a personal God in a world that is both natural and supernatural. We don't think about that very much. All things include all realms, seen and unseen. It includes present suffering and present joy, as well as eternal suffering and eternal joy. A lot of times people look at certain situations in life, present death and eternal death. God considers those things. Like, man, Lord, Why does this person have to have cancer or something? When really, if God just gave them health and wealth, they'd live their life apart from him, die and go to hell. But if he allows a certain amount of difficulty to be in their life, they realize their need for him and turn to him. Which which is worse in the end? See, God has to consider all all things. There's a lot of things we're not looking at. And as Christians, we realize this isn't the only world. The unsaved, they don't know that, so we can't hold them accountable for it. But the saved person knows there's this world and there's a supernatural world. And God is organizing everything in both of those worlds together. In the story of Job, we see the two colliding. We had the veil pulled back a little bit. Job was not aware of what was happening in the background. Ephesians 3 tells us this. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and the powers in heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. He tells us that the church is showing the wisdom of God, not just to the world, but to supernatural principalities and powers in heavenly places. Something that God is doing in organizing the church, the crazy thing that is the actual church all over the face of the world, isn't just speaking about my life personally, but it's speaking about God's wisdom to supernatural beings in heavenly places. All things, 
And yes, all things include the good and the bad here on earth. Certainly as humans, we even understand we mix certain harmful things together for a certain end. We put venom in a concoction to make anti-venom. Put chemo in people's bodies to kill cancer. We go through hardships on all types of various levels to come to a certain end. And the ultimate example, again, is always Christ Jesus. The worst thing that ever happened on the face of the earth was the murder of the Son of God. And the world will be, will be held accountable for it. But he took the cross and made it the source of life to any that would come to him. The worst thing became the greatest gift. And he asks us to follow him. Not just to death, but to glory. Doesn't all end here. It's not just the negative things. That's typically what we talk about. But it also involves the good things. All things are working together for our good. That's, it ends with the good, not with the evil. And what happens in the end, again, Paul has already said, is the good way outweighs any of the difficulty through the process to get there. The joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame. And you and I trust the same thing, that God is working all of this for our good. If the cross had so much good in it, what will the crown have? If the trials here on earth even work for our good, what is going to be the good of the eternal reward and glory? Way better. It's not just the evil, it's the good. We can't forget that God is working good. Sadly, our discontent with God's hands in our lives, uh, particularly with our petty pains, don't often flatter us. You know, this verse we bring it out, I think, in very critical situations, which is important. You can think of what happens in Ukraine or even just what happened through COVID. We can think of a lot of different scenarios and we can say, Man, Lord, we got to trust that you're still working our good in these really difficult scenarios. We don't know how, but here's what your word says. And that's true. But this verse isn't just for the world altering things. It's for more than when you end up with a terminal disease. It's for today. It's for our normal lives. It's for when you're forced to change your diet or your social circle, or your job, or your plans for the day, or any one of our infinite levels of self-indulgence that exist in all of us and cause us to live as something less than God would have us to be. God sometimes subdues us better by challenging us in the daily little things than he does in asking for one big thing. And so he says, I'm going to organize your life for your good, but you might not like it for a little bit. It allows there to be a little friction in your life. And you know, we can't complain too much because we're good Christians. And we're like, I know there's people getting martyred, but this thing is really annoying. 
And we don't use this verse in that context, but this is what that verse is for as well. It's not just for the martyrs in the world. It is for you and I today to look at it in faith and for say, okay, God, I, I need to learn to be independent and content in you. Not indifferent to the things of the world, but my life in you, my joy in you, my trust in your good is independent of the petty annoyances in my life. I can still see your hand in these things. Every single day you're working for our good. Every single day your hand is involved in my life and would to God that we saw more of it. Jesus, when he was interrupted, did you ever notice, didn't act like he was interrupted? It was almost like he trusted God was directing things. There are times where, just been looking through the Gospels, they didn't have time to eat all day. What are we like when we haven't eaten all day? Hangry, right? What, what, yet, yet we don't see him walking around complaining and then Jesus freaked out or lost it. He knew that everything happening in his life was working for God's good plan. It was working something that would be a far more eternal weight of glory. And for you and I, Christ actually has more purpose in our lives than we see. That's what this is telling us. Your life is actually tied to bigger things than you feel. You just don't see it all. And what God is saying is, they're actually so big, I need you to trust me. Like, he takes care of, Job says, Pleiades and Orion. What if he let one of the constellations out of control for an hour? Right? All of creation would go out of control. He's, he's got it under control. He knows what he's doing. But sometimes it's easier, almost like the big thing. I trust you with that stuff. But my little life, like, this is really annoying. No, that's part of the control, too. He's trying to work something in you. You who love God and are called according to his purpose. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. God has called you with a holy calling right here today. And if we could discover more and more of this on earth, that all things do truly work together for our good, that there's a great force, an unseen purpose from the purposer, behind it all, putting it all together because of his sheer will and power, it would allow me to go through my day a lot less stressed and a little more aware of what was actually happening around me. Maybe I would get to see a little bit more of God's hand and purpose in the moment instead of after the fact. And it would allow us to, in ways, serve him and not be caught off guard or sometimes regretful that, man, I was totally out of God's will in that moment. We're supposed to know that. With our experience, I know 
that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You're like, does this even mean anything, Lord? What am I doing with my life? Yes, it does. It does. It's exactly what this verse is saying. More actually than you know. Because, here's Paul's going to essentially kind of wrap up this doctrinal section here, saying this, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, and whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, he also glorified. This is one of the most amazing and beautiful and glorious kind of doctrinal statements in the Bible, which is, of course, why theologians argue about it so much. Uh, what is true and what matters most is that this is true, not necessarily how we want to get there theologically. This is a declarative statement by Paul. It's not explanative, if that's a real word. Close, maybe. It's not a whole explanation. It is a declaration. This is true. It is tied to what he's been saying, that all of these links that God has gotten rolling, that the guy who started it all has the power and wisdom to make sure it all gets to the end point, is the guy you're trusting. Faith is in its object. Faith is just simply trusting that God is who he says he is. In his word, that his character is going to be what he tells us it is. These things are true. These things do not need to be intellectually reconciled. They are already reconciled because they are in the Bible. They are God's truth shown to us. We should have our theology of how all of this works out. But we should hold it in great humility. I'm not going to dive into the whole specifics of this, of man's responsibility, of God's sovereignty, of the more Calvinistic or Arminian end of things. Uh, I think we tend to make more an issue of that than the Holy Spirit does. There's been men and women, godly men and women, used by the Holy Spirit on either side of those issues. Athanasius on the more Arminian side, Augustine on the more Calvinistic side, Luther, obviously, on the more Calvinistic side. One of his best friends, Melanchthon, on the more Arminian side. George Whitfield on the more Calvinistic side. John Wesley, one of his best friends, on the more Arminian side. We could go to more modern-day people as well. A.W. Tozier on the more Arminian side. You go R.C. Sproul on the more Calvinistic side. Chuck Smith, John Piper. We could go through the list. The Holy Spirit has obviously used some pretty remarkable people all through the ages who hold how we get there a little differently. Everybody believes in free will. Everybody believes in predestination. Everybody believes in God's sovereignty. Everybody believes in the responsibility of man. How we get there looks a little bit different. That's okay. All these things are spoken of here as if they'd already happened because they're secure in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is, look, we know that the God who started all of this is going to bring it to its expected end. 
Acts tells us in Acts 15, 18, known to God from eternity are all his works. There's nothing that's surprising him along the path. If he got the ball rolling, he's going to make sure it gets to where he wanted it to roll to. So I can have faith and know that he will bring me to this end of glorification. Right? The one who foreknew also predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son, the firstborn among many brethren. These, moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. If he got that ball rolling, he's going to call. And if he called us, he also justified us. And those he justified, he also glorified. The links in the chain will not be broken, Paul is telling us. There's not going to be somebody he justified that, oops, didn't get glorified. Or, I started this whole plan, but somewhere along the line, these guys threw in a wrench I didn't really expect, so they're out. See, we, we, can, we can get kind of afraid that we did something that maybe, you know, we just got bumped off the train on accident or something. That's not what's happening here. Paul is saying, no, no, no. We, we have a firm knowledge that what God has started, he's going to finish it. He, this is meant to encourage us. It's meant to exhort us. But it's meant to build up a believer. And some people get so theologically tied up in it, they actually can't even think that they're saved. That's not why Paul is saying these things. It's, in fact, the exact opposite of why Paul is saying these things. In the end, he sees the father has his sons and daughters, that Jesus Christ has his bride and his brethren. You notice that phrase there that he uses. The Holy Spirit has his pure people, his temple. This is so that believers can look and say, you know what, Lord, whatever else is happening in the world, I know I'm getting where you want me to get. I'm going to be glorified in the end. You're going to get me there. This whole path you got started, you're going to get it to where it's supposed to go. And, and I should feel the richness of that in my life, like it's real. If I told you, you won the lottery, and in the new year, on the first, $200 million is going to get transferred into your bank account, how rich would you feel right now? Right? You would feel pretty rich right now. Why? Because you know this date is coming and it's going to hit. There is no more sure thing, no greater riches than the riches that we will have in Christ Jesus for all eternity. And what Paul is saying is, you're part of everything that the God of the universe has gotten rolling, you're going to get there. He's going to make sure it happens. And all that you see, even in your weakness, you're going to look and you're going to say, I'm ignorant sometimes. I don't know how this all works together. I don't know how all these events work together. I don't know how this difficulty that's left me in a place where I don't even know how to, how to pray works together. But I know that all things work together for the good, those who love you and are called according to your purposes. God, I just bring myself to you, my heart, my prayer. The Holy Spirit takes all those things. He brings us back to the truth that from eternity, God knew what he was doing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 says this, 
as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Paul is saying, like a father, I tried to, I, I tried to comfort and encourage and exhort you. You're going to walk into the kingdom of God one day. How rich are you right now? Live like that. Walk worthy of that. He has purposed this, and this is where he's taking us. And the ending image in 29, he says, his ultimate kind of, where does all this go? Where does it bring us? It brings us to be conformed into the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. What, What the end looks like is, us looking like Jesus Christ. That's what the end game is. The end game is not Adam. Sometimes we get that confused. I am not looking to be conformed into Adam's image and likeness. Adam was innocent. Adam had the ability to sin. That's not what heaven is going to be for us. If I had to be afraid that I was going to eat a wrong fruit and get kicked out at any moment, that would not be heaven. I, I am going to be, you and I are going to be something higher than Adam was. We are going to be conformed into Christ's image and likeness. You are going to be conformed into Christ's body, that immortal, resurrected body. There's going to be a higher life than Adam enjoyed even in the beginning, at the end for you and I. And what that looks like is what he's called you to, that you're going to be glorified. And you're going to be glorified in the image and likeness of his son. This is the great work that God is conforming us into. And each person that we meet, each individual son and daughter of God, is a unique reflection of something of who God is. He's infinite. But when he made us in his image and likeness, there is a part of you that is something like him. Even in lesser things, every thumbprint can be unique. Every snowflake is created unique. Those are lesser creations. Human beings are made in his image and likeness. And one day, he's going to have a whole bunch of brethren, because he's the firstborn, conformed into the image and likeness of his son. Glorified, without the presence of sin in our lives. And... Each individual is supposed to make a special type of impression that no one else could ever make of who Jesus Christ is. That's why every single person is unique. Every son or daughter of God is unique. You know, there's pros and cons to every kind of church, small churches and large churches. And in every type of ministry, there's some great things and there's some difficult things. One of the, the pros of being a part of a large church like this, in my experience, is that you get to meet a whole lot of believers who are wonderfully Christ-like. Not perfect, but there's so many people that reflect something about him. There's a Christ-like type of courage or faith or conviction, or sweetness of service, a servant's heart, an authority, a power, a spiritual light, 
a thankfulness, a sweetness of just communion with him, of praise, of love, of mercy. There's something Christ-like in so many people. I can look around the pastoral staff and see, it's wonderful to see how people reflect Christ in their own natural way. I can look at so many people I've served with in so many ministries here, so many servants at this church, just reflecting Christ in unique ways. I talk to so many saints or meet them and hear what's happening in their lives. And you just see something wonderful about Christ that they reflect in a unique way. And there's no cookie cutter way about it. It's unique. Seven colors in a rainbow, hundreds of different hues in each color. You could take all those colors and all those hues and mix them with other colors and make an endless type of colors and mixtures of something unique there. Well, what Jesus Christ has done is when he made us in his image and likeness, he has a goal to get the whole mix perfectly out there so that it can be seen in clarity. You're going to reflect some shade of Christ's likeness, some form of his divine love that no other being in creation can show or reveal. And one of the greatest blessings of being in a world of people like Jesus Christ is going to be seeing his glory in a unique way in other people. He is still the highest. He's infinite. But the thing that will most glorify God outside of God himself through all eternity is going to be you his son or his daughter. And to live in a world of people that are like Jesus Christ is a pretty cool world to be a part of. And this is supposed to be a good version of it here. It is. But it's not the best version yet. And his ultimate plan is going to happen. He's going to get us there. And God's glory will be discovered eternally without end. Sin steals from us here. Steals our Christ-likeness. Hides who he made us to be. Takes away the glory that people would see. It's why God doesn't leave us alone. And works to continually be conforming us into his image and likeness. It's why... He'll make your day annoying if he has to. Because he's getting you to his ultimate purpose, which you're going to be happy about in the end. Because you're not going to be happy that you are a miserable, sinful self. You're going to be happy that you're created in his image and likeness. And the reason that God's end-all work is to conform us into the image of Christ is because the more we're like Jesus Christ, the more we're actually truly ourselves. The more we are what we were made to be, who he made us to be. And because the more we're like Christ, the more we glorify him. And so we find ourselves, when we're most perfectly holy, we are also going to be most perfectly happy. And that's why the Lord cares a little bit more about us being holy than happy right now. Because he knows, in the end, you will be happiest when you are most like him. That the two actually go together.
And so God is going to continue, no matter what anybody thinks, to work all things to his ultimate end. He knew from eternity what he was going to do. And he's predestined you to be a part of it. And he called you at a point in time. And then he justified you. And he's doing his work of sanctification in your life through his Holy Spirit. And he's going to continue that work until he glorifies you. And he gets you where you're supposed to be. And when he does, you're not going to look back and say, that wasn't worth it. You can say, I knew. I knew all things were working together for the good. Let's stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you would reveal these things to us. Lord, I pray that they would be the truths that you want them to be in our lives. I pray they would hold deeper weight than they have before. I pray that you would reveal them to our hearts. Again, Lord, I know, Lord, that I am weak to impart what you want, but you give us your spirit. And you say your spirit takes of the things that are yours and reveals them to us. You sent him to do that job. And I pray that he would do it in each of our hearts tonight. Lord, I pray for myself as your son and for these, your sons and daughters. We are yours and you are ours. And so give us our portion, Lord, of these things in simple childlike faith. And allow us to rest in them and rest in you. And we look forward to the day, Lord, when you make all these things more real than we could have ever imagined. And until then, Lord, certainly in faith, we give you all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen.